Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Urban Frank Meyer III was born in Toledo, Ohio in July of 1964. He grew up in Ashtabula, Ohio, and in 1982 was a 13th-round draft pick to play baseball as a shortstop by the Atlanta Braves. He did that in the minor leagues for a couple of years. He came to the University of Cincinnati to play football, and it's where he would start his coaching career, believe it or not, at St. Xavier High School. After earning his master's degree at Ohio State, Coaching there as a grad assistant under Earl Bruce. It was off to Illinois State, Colorado State, then to Notre Dame as an assistant under Lou Holtz. Four years later, he became a head coach for the first time at Bowling Green, then went on to Utah where they ripped off 22 out of 24, including an undefeated 2004 season. In 06, the Florida Gators, where he won a national championship his second year beating Ohio State. Two years later with Tim Tebow, they won it all again, killing Oklahoma in the title game. And then, of course, after a couple of years out, Ohio State came a-calling. He won seven Big Ten championships in seven years, won a national championship, and never lost to, as they say, that team up north. Not one time did he lose. He'll be in Columbus for the game on Saturday as part of the Fox pregame show. He and his wife, Shelly, proud parents of three kids. He's even a grandfather now. Urban Meyer, welcome to Off the Bench. How are you, young man? I'm doing good, Tom. Great to see you. Nice seeing you, too. Um, you know, I, where to begin? Uh, you, you know, you grew up an Ohio guy, uh, but as I mentioned a little while ago, you're a baseball player. Was baseball your first love more so than football? No, uh, football has always been my first love. I was a little better at baseball. You know, I... Uh, had some football scholarships, and then uh, and Cincinnati was the highest level that I was offered. And then uh, Ohio or uh, baseball, I started getting my senior year. I had a really good year, and and they started talking about getting drafted into Major League Baseball. And I had a really good senior year, and was drafted by the Atlanta Braves in June. And you know, made a decision to sign. You know, uh, football has always been my first love, but baseball, I, I love baseball. But uh, baseball, you know, hard to say no when the Atlanta Braves pick you on that draft day. Um, so you, you, you come to UC. Uh, you're a proud alum of UC. You, you still have kept in contact with a number of your friends uh, that, that you went to the University of Cincinnati with when you come back here into town. Um, you start your coaching career 
at St. Xavier High School, right? I did. I was still finishing up at Cincinnati, and uh, uh, some contacts were made, and Steve Rasso, the legendary high school coach at St. X, is a Cincinnati graduate, and you know, I, I was only there for a couple months, and then Tom Lichtenberg, who was a quarterback coach at Ohio State, was good friends with Steve Rasso, and my goal was to be a graduate assistant. And uh, obviously, I've been a Buckeye as far back as I can remember. And that was uh, when that phone call came. That was a yes immediately. What was what was the influence that Earl Bruce had on you in your career? I mean, obviously, he brought you on board as a grad assistant there. But, you know, when you came in, all of a sudden, th th there was a lot of turmoil there with him, and he was going to get fired, and they asked him to coach the Michigan game. The athletic director resigns. But, but, but what did Earl Bruce, the coach and the man, mean to you? Earl was like a father to me. He was very similar to my, to my father, and they became great friends. But, I mean, Earl was tough as nails. Uh, you know, there was no gray area. You know, right versus wrong, a premium place on academics. I remember our first staff meeting in 1986. He told all of us we'd be fired immediately if our players didn't graduate. We had to keep in our wallet. We had to keep, uh, this is well before iPads and cell phones. And, and we had to keep all the players' records as far as when their tests were, their tutors, the GPA, what they need to graduate. And that came from Woody Hayes. And so... I carried so much of the things I learned from Earl Bruce throughout my career about education, you know, about premium place. He used to say premium place on education and making sure your players graduate. Uh, also, following the rules. You know, the one thing that uh, I credit the Big Ten Conference with Bo Schembechler and Earl Bruce and Woody Hayes that, you know, you hear a lot about the cheating and things that go on in uh, uh, college football. You just don't hear about that in the Big Ten. And why is that? There's a culture of compliance and that's what Earl Bruce meant to me and that's what I believe Bo Schembecker, Woody Hayes and guys like Earl Bruce meant to the Big Ten Conference. All right so you, you go off uh, after you leave Ohio State you're at Illinois State you're at Colorado State and then how did you land at Notre Dame under Lou Holtz? Well I, uh, Skip Holtz is uh, his son is a great friend of mine and and I was at Colorado State a long time, six years. Both our daughters were born there. We had opportunities to leave. And Shelly, quite frankly, went, she said, we're not leaving. You know, we had those conversations many times. We loved it there. But there were three schools that I told her that if they ever called, I got to go. And ironically, one was Ann Arbor, uh, Columbus, and, and Notre Dame. And uh, we used to joke around and said her majority word becomes a minority word when one of those three <laughs> schools, I take over 50. I take over 51% of the relationship if one of those schools called. And sure enough, Lou Holtz gave me a call one day, and she was real upset because she knew that if, if I had a chance to go to Notre Dame, of course I'd take that. I've been around you when you've told stories about trying to go recruit guys, cats that grow up down in Florida and California and all that, the great weather, and all of a sudden you roll them into South Bend, Indiana when you're allowed to recruit in December and January. That, that, that's got to be a tough sell, Coach, even though it's Notre Dame. Yeah, when you heard the words lake effect, you, you tried to change the <laughs> schedule. You know? You know, So, uh, Michiana, they call when Lake Michigan, when that when that snow comes rolling over that lake into South Bend, it was hilarious. I mean, I was recruiting. Florida was my main state, and I had some great players set for visits in December, and I would always you know, I'd check that weather on Tuesday, Wednesday, and if it was bad, 
I was going to change it to the following, you know, couple weeks. And it was a bad winter. We kept putting it off and off. And finally in uh, January, it was a great story. I, these two players from Florida arrived. They don't have coats. So I gave them coats to wear for the weekend. And I mean, they looked at me like I had seven heads. It was so cold. There was so much snow that uh, I ended up losing those two players, ironically, to the Florida Gators. But, yeah, it was those are win tough winners, man. Great summers, tough winners. Um, you get your first head coaching job at Bowling Green. Um, and you were coaching, correct me if I'm wrong, when you were at Notre Dame, you were actually coaching on the defensive side of the ball, right? No, I've been uh, other than one year offense my entire okay, time. Okay, okay. But, but when you come into Bowling Green, had anybody seen anything – with this style of offense now you're starting to run, I'm not going to say that you necessarily invented it, but, but all of a sudden uh, you're doing things that, 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 that nobody's seen before. Yeah, Dan Mullen was my graduate assistant, and we started studying. Scott Lenahan was the coach, at, uh, the offense coordinator at Louisville, a good friend of mine. We started studying from him, and, and Rich Rodriguez was an assistant at Clemson. He just started – looking into this spread offense. Joe Tiller was at a, a Purdue, and he was more of a basket. They called it basketball and grass. So we wanted to do a spread, an I-formation mentality. That means toughness, run the ball, but from a variety of spread sets that you uh, and make defenders defend the entire width of the field with bubble screens and, and get the ball out fast and utilize a quarterback in the run game. So really uh, – our version of the spread offense started in 2001. Dan Mullen, myself, and Greg Brandon. And we just, I mean, it was incredible. We would sit in those meetings. Our wives weren't moved yet. So we would sit in that meeting room for 10 hours a day and just put this thing together. And uh, it was, there was really no prototype. And then we just kept adapting, adapting. Dan Mullen was me, who's a great football coach for a long time. We took it to Utah adapted it to Alex Smith, and that's when it really, really took off. The spread mm -hmm. offense became the spread offense in 2003 and four. You know, you really did at Utah that second year where you go undefeated, and back in those days it was a BCS, um, and, and you guys broke through, uh, not, uh, not unlike what the University of Cincinnati did last year in breaking through and getting in the college football playoff Final Four, but you taking that Utah team, that was a huge deal in college football when you got into that game out in Arizona. Yeah, that was kind of the, the broke the ice of the BCS. You know, that was, you had TCU, we had Boise State, and you had Utah. And that was when, the, you know, I, I got into it a lot of times with some media people when they said, you know, you're not a BCS school. And I was thinking, we have better BCS, better players than most BCS schools. What are you talking about? You know, we... We're selling out our stadium, and I got real defensive of our players because uh, for someone to say we don't have BCS players, you know, we, we had better players than we had a first, the first pick overall in the NFL draft with Alex Smith. So it really gave us a little chip on our shoulder, and our players really thrived. Our, our 2014 team, that team could have beat anybody in America. We didn't have the depth. And I joke around with Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush a lot because they, they won the national title in 04, and I said, you're lucky you didn't have to play that Utah team because we would have got after you. And they, they laugh about it. But that was a great football team. And that opened the door, I believe, to Boise State the next couple of years, that, uh, TCU the next couple of years, and a team like Cincinnati. 
when you go to Florida, uh, look, and, and it's not diminishing, you know, the, the Mid-American Conference. Uh, I talk all the time about my alma mater, Ohio University, and how great they're playing right now and going to the MAC title game. So I'm a big MAC fan and, and, and out there at Utah. But now you're walking into the Lions' den, so to speak, uh, by going down to the University of Florida and in the Southeastern Conference. When you walked in that Florida program, what did you see and what needed to change? I'll tell you what, that was an education that it took us a minute to just realize the talent, the size of those big people that can run and, and, and the athleticism in the SEC. Every, every story you've ever heard is true about the difference between the SEC, especially the defense alignment, and anywhere else in the country, just watching the NFL draft. So uh, we ran a style of offense that was really good in the MAC. Once again, not disrespecting the MAC, and then the Mountain West or the uh, um, yeah, Mountain West Conference out in Utah, but the players change. We get down there, you're, you're blocking first-rounders every week on the defensive side of the ball. We really, really struggled the first five, six, seven games, and then we, we played awful against LSU. We had a bye week follow on that, and I summoned Dan Mullen and Steve Adazi, our line coach, to my house. We, got, we started at 2 a.m., and we finished late that af next afternoon. And we redid the offense on napkins, on paper, you know, on because we ran out of paper because it was at my house, about six uh, pots of coffee. And we adapted the offense to the SEC. That means we took a linebacker and moved him to fullback. We started changing the launch points of the quarterback. We did a lot. We added a gap scheme, the counter and power, and we changed the entire offense. And from that point forward, that offense was really hard to stop in the SEC. Well, the next year, you win the whole thing. Uh, you know, you, you, you're juggling the quarterback. You, you've got the senior who was there, and you've got this emerging young guy named Tim Tebow. When, when, when you were recruiting Tim Tebow, um, what did you see? In, I mean, he, he, he's everything that's right, in my opinion, and I got killed for this, for saying this in, in, during the national championship game when I did both of your uh, championship games, wins over Ohio State and, and Oklahoma. But, but what an amazing young man and an incredible player. That, that, that had to be an awesome experience to coach Tim Tebow. Yeah, he's everything you said in, in just rattles me when someone says they get killed for saying great things about Tim Tebow. And I, I remember, uh, you know, same thing. There would be people just, you got to get, get a life. If that's something that you feel that, you know, that's that important to you to tear someone apart like that, that's that you got to move on. But I recruited Tim, you know, there was a lot of pressure at Florida to recruit him. At first I didn't want to, you know, we had an awkward throwing motion. You know, a lot of teams were even saying he wasn't going to be a quarterback. Same thing they said in college, same thing they said in the NFL. Uh, but then when you witness what kind of leader and tough – he's the toughest player I've ever coached. And that's not being disparaging to any other uh, great uh, uh, players, but tough as nails. And uh, as competitive human being has ever been around. So we had him for four years. He won a Heisman, was part of one national championship, was a starter on another national championship. It was a first-round draft pick. Number two quarterback ever, most efficient quarterback ever to play college football. And more importantly, he was a great leader. Um, 
your health starts to become an issue uh, as the years pass in Florida. You win the second national championship, as I mentioned, um, and, and now health scares. What got your attention that, that maybe I got to get out of this? Well, it started, I never lost sleep. I never, you know, in 2005, like things were happening to me that I'd never experienced, Tom, that, you know, uh, I would have anxiety attacks where I would start sweating and my hands would start shaking. And, you know, I would, I would not sleep. I would not take care of myself. And your body starts shutting down on you. And that was happening. And I became addicted to Ambien, you know, where that the only way I would get four hours sleep was I'd take one. And then I ended up taking two. And it was, it was, it was terrible. And then I started losing weight. And this is after we're winning like crazy. You know, 2006, we win it. 2007, I, I'm not feeling well. And I'm starting having chest pains. And I go to the doctors and I keep taking those tests, those stress tests to find out what is it. And then a friend of mine named Randy Walker passed away, the head coach of Northwestern, a good friend, a good guy. I leaned on him for you know, I just, be, we played him when I was at Bowling Green and, and he, he passed away of a heart attack. And I started thinking, wait a minute now, this, I, I don't feel well. I'm having chest pains that are uncontrollable. The doctors can't, you know, the, the stress tests are not showing up any, uh, or, or no blockage or, and then after the FCC championship game, I had a real scare, a 911 call where I lost consciousness. And that's when the thoughts started saying, you know, I'm done. I, I don't need to do this anymore. We won a couple championships. My family means the world to me. And so that's when I, I stepped away from Florida. So you go into television, um, and, and now a couple of years later, um, here comes Ohio State. Did you have to convince your family? I mean, you, you, you've alluded earlier if Ohio State ever called and, and talking to Shelly about that, that if Ohio State ever called, well, well, now they're calling. But you're also well aware of the health issues you were having. You're starting to feel better. How hard a sell was that to your wife and your kids to go back and do it all over again? It was, it was, it was, these are some tough times. You're, you're bringing up some memories here that uh, were, were very tough. So... I, after I left Florida, uh, Shelly and I were out and about, and I looked at her one night, and I said, you know, I made a mistake. She says, what are you talking about? I said, I should have left Florida. I'm not done coaching. I really believe I need to do this again. And she said, you, you absolutely are not. And if you do, give this time. You know, give it time. I was very young, still in my 40s at the time. And, and so I realized I'm making a mistake. And then I went on the TV and, and really um, some neat things to do. And then all of a sudden uh, – you know, Ohio State had that Jim Trestle uh, issue, which to this day I still can't imagine that's what happened out of it But because Jim's a dear friend of mine. And I get a phone call, and I, don't, I didn't even tell Shelly about it. I got a phone call uh, if I would be in, asking if my interest in Ohio State, and of course the answer is yes. That's my home school. That's my home state. Like I said, I've been a Buckeye as long back as you could say the word Buckeye. And so the seasons, we're going through the season. And I'm, once again, it's getting very serious conversation. And finally, she confronted me in, uh, I want to say, September or October and said, I know something's going on. I said, yeah, they, they're going to offer me the job here, I think. And what do you think? And she said, absolutely not. She said, no, we're not moving from Florida. We love it here. This is our home. And the thing, Tom, it's amazing. I actually, in my own heart, didn't even think that way because I thought, how could you not? We're, we're Buckeyes. 
my kids weren't Buckeyes. They were Gators. You know, they grew up in the Florida Gator world and Gator Nation, and we lived there. It was going on seven, eight years now in Gainesville, and you know, I just was overwhelmed with the thought of being a coach of the Buckeyes. And they went six and seven, and, and the way they approached me is, we need your help here, and how can you say no to that? And so we had some tough conversations. We had a family meeting, and Nicole, my oldest daughter, was very emotional for all of them because they saw what I went through, and, and some promises were made that I would do things differently, which I did, and they gave me the blessing at the end of the day. The school initially is on probation because of the whole trestle thing that happens. You go undefeated, but you can't be a part of the BCS. Um, and, and now the formation of the college football playoff, um, you know, comes around. And 2014, you win the national championship. Urban, I, I mean, if you were to try to sell that story in Hollywood, I'm not so sure anybody buys that script. And if for no other reason, the quarterback position, because to refresh people's memory, you've got this big star in Braxton Miller who's all of a sudden hurt. He's not going to be able to play quarterback anymore, right? Now you're going to start this freshman, J.T. Barrett. You go 11-1, and you beat Michigan, but in the Michigan game, he breaks <laughs> his ankle. Now comes some cat named Cardale Jones. And he's going to start his first collegiate start is in the Big Ten championship game. You win 59 to nothing. And then off you go behind Ezekiel Elliott and the rest of the crew and, and win the whole thing. You kill Alabama uh, and, and then you, you, you whitewash Oregon. Uh, you know, 20, 10 years later almost, you look back on that and what stands out to you? I mean, I just gave a laundry list of things, but maybe that's not the thing that stands out to you. Yeah, it was 10 days before our first game. Our best player was Braxton Miller by far, Heisman candidate. <clears throat> Behind him, we had JT Barrett, who was a guy that had ACL surgery just a year earlier. He had Cardell Jones, who was a talented guy, but had his own issues that he was dealing with. <clears throat> and I'll never forget on the practice field when Braxton Miller were bringing him along slowly, and, and he throws a pass to his left, only about seven yards, and physically you hear it pop, and his arm goes numb, and basically comes out of his shoulder. He dislocates his shoulder and, uh, you know, he's like a son to me and I, he's sobbing on the ground and the whole team stops. I stop. We all stop. I'm holding his hand and, and he's in tremendous amount of pain, which is the worst part of this game. And then all of a sudden reality sets in as we, we got a, we got something going on here. We've just lost, by the way, we just lost our last two games at Clemson in a bowl game and Michigan State in the that's after winning 24 straight, we lose two straight. We're down a quarterback. And I'm thinking, I call Shelly afterwards and we're just talking. And I said, we're, we're looking at a really bad year here. You know, we, we just, you know, Mike Thomas wasn't Mike Thomas yet. Zeke wasn't Zeke yet. And I, w I had some bad feelings about this team. You know, we, we, we were not where we needed to be. However, one of the things that I learned about, I always knew, but I really learned about that team and the whole theme of the season was solve the mystery. And the mystery is how do you, you know, how do you learn to put something ahead of yourself? You want to be a great, a great husband, put your wife ahead of you. You want to be a great parent, put your children ahead of you. And our message to the team was football, you have to be unselfish. You want to be a great teammate, you know, stop all the nonsense. 
Stop all the selfishness, laziness, all the things that hurt teams, and put your teammates ahead of yourself. And that was the theme. And I mean, I had great Curtis Grant, Joshua Perry, some of the best leaders. JT Barrett became a great leader. And that team became the most unselfish team I've ever witnessed. And and by the way, we had great players, or we were at, we had really good players that became great players. Seven years at Ohio State, you go 83 and 9. Um, and now all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the health issues spring up again. Um, was there a moment like you talked about in Florida where at Ohio State, you're like, man, th- th- this is going down the wrong trail again? Yeah, in 2014, ironically, the year we won it, I was having, I've always had uh, bad headaches that go along with some of the other stuff. And they identified an arachnoid cyst right in the middle of my brain, about the size of a fist. And it's not cancerous, it's not a tumor, it's a cyst that causes really, really bad headaches. And when it ruptures, I mean debilitating. And it happened several times. I was hospitalized a couple of times, kept it under wraps. And then finally in 2014 spring, during practice, it happened again. And I went to the doctor, they did a CAT scan. They said, we're having surgery, uh, brain surgery, emergency. We, we're gonna do this. You, you gotta call your family and, and they did. And to relieve the pressure on, that was causing the headaches. And they drilled two holes in my head and it was, uh, it was pretty scary stuff, obviously. And that's when I started to say, okay, now there's an end to this ones are going to be you know i don't want to continue i you know if it happened again they told me they're not sure what they would be able to do because you can't just keep drilling holes and some of there's some alternative things about you know putting a, a shunt in there i think they called it and, but i kind of you know i i started putting a timeline on saying you know i want it when i'm 55 years old i'd like to be done and move on and that's the way it worked out and then i found ryan day you know ohio state means so much to me the state the uh, school and I had I, I'm very biased but I think it's time tested we have the best infrastructure in college football we have the best recruiting staff best academic we have the best infrastructure in college football and I, we couldn't lose that and so I talked to our president talked to Gene Smith and said I think we found our next coach in Ryan Day and they really didn't know Ryan very well and then Gene got to know him and felt the same way and uh they gave us our blessing, and I decided after the Big Ten championship game at 18 that that was good. That especially, you know, we beat our rival one last time. That's 7-0, and and it's time to hand this off to a, a younger coach and right off in the sunset. All right, let's talk about Ryan Day and Ohio State. You're going to be at the game, part of the um, Fox Noon kickoff pregame show in Columbus. Uh, everybody across the country, it, it, it'll be the most watched game without a doubt in college football this entire season. Um, we know what happened last year, uh, and I know you still talk regularly and have spent time around Ryan Day. Um, the game is always important, Coach, but I mean, for, for Ryan Day, is it even more so after what happened last year? It is. You know, that's, uh, and Ryan knows it. You know, I talked to Ryan quite a bit. We're still very close. Uh, you think of these two coaches right now, both excellent coaches, Jim Harbaugh and Ryan Day. You know, they got two of the top three teams in the country playing each other for everything. And I think Coach Harbaugh is one and five in the, in the game. Uh, uh, Ryan is one and one. And, you know, 
once again, I, I, I've been accused of being overdramatic about this game. I don't believe I am. For people that live this rivalry, it's not, this never leaves you. This is something that's part of your life and it's bigger than a game. And so this is, this is huge. This is, they, they both, they both have to win this game and there's no other way to say it that uh, for a lot of reasons, you know, you got the Big Ten Championship in Indianapolis the next week, college football playoff. But I think it's more important than that. It's the game. You know, it's, you can't lose this game. Did you do anything different as a head coach the week of the game? I mentioned earlier, 7-0. You never lost to Michigan. I, You know, I, Tom, that's a great question. And Lou Holtz, my mentor, would always I would always ask him questions. He was like a, an encyclopedia for me. And he would always stop me and say, what kind of team do you have? So I would do a lot of things different depending upon the team I have. If I have a an overconfident team, I'd kind of work them real hard. Or, you know, if I had the team exactly the way it was, you know, this is not going to be about, you know, I would always pull the pads off early in the week because I wanted our guys fresh. I wanted our guys, I would try to back off of practice as much as possible. But it depends what kind of team you have. You know, if you have an experienced team, you know, it, it, you, you don't want to overdo it because everything's overdone in this game. Most Those poor players, especially with social media now, can you imagine the intensity, that the intense scrutiny that they're under right now? Just the, just the players. You know, old men, coaches can handle it, but these players. So it's just, you know, you got to get. As Lou Holtz would always say, you don't play the game until noon on Saturday. Don't play the game before that game. You look at this matchup. Uh, last year, Michigan ran the ball straight down Ohio State's throat. They were the more physical team. They were the more uh, dominant team. There was no doubt about it. Now there are a lot of lingering questions for both teams at the running back position, who's healthy, who can play, who can't play, so on and so forth. Uh, I guess you could probably say it about every college football game or pro football game, but is this one come down to what happens tackle to tackle? Tom, I did some research over the years on this, and, and I, I think this is, first of all, I believe that just that's the foundation of football. The more equated talent becomes, it's line of scrimmage game. I think it's always going to be that way. Certainly in the north and when you're not in the indoors, you know, where weather and wind and rain potentially could be a problem. I don't see the elements being a problem, but the history of this game is a team that controls the line of scrimmage wins. So, it, the, the Wolverines have been really dominant on both sides of the ball. You know, their big issue is they might have lost this tailback. Blake Corum's a Heisman candidate. We've watched him up close. I'm a huge fan of this guy, not just because he's a great player. He's tough as can be. And uh, Ohio State also has some issues at running back where Travion, they're not sure he's going to go. Mayan Williams, they're not sure he's going to go. I understand that uh, they're going to have Mayan. I think I heard that. Uh, so the ability to get the ball on on short yardage and run the ball when you have to run the ball and not be one-dimensional, that's going to be critical. And I believe this, that this game will come down to J.J. McCarthy's ability to perform. He's been up and down. He's very talented. But I do believe you can stop the run. You can load the box. You can stop that run. And they're going to force the Wolverines, I really believe, to throw the ball to win the game. And, and that's not been their strength this year. Uh, should both of these teams, Coach, end up in a college football playoff? I think on videotape, as of right now, November, whatever the date is, on videotape, they are two of the best four teams in the country. And that's the job of the committee. So it depends on how the game goes, depends on the healthier team, 
if one team gets blown out, there's no chance they'll be in it. But you also have USC, who has really shocked everybody this year, and a TCU team that's uh, been really good. So, you know, who goes in, who doesn't? But I on videotape, on, on tape, just purely as a football coach watching it, uh, these two are the two of the top four teams in America. Let me ask you about the college football playoff rankings that came out last night. We were talking a, a long time about this before you came on today. Uh, there's never been a two-loss team that made the college football playoff since it started in 14. Um, LSU has two losses, uh, albeit early in the season, but two losses. Uh, and should uh, you know LSU beat Georgia, uh, it looks like, Coach, that uh, you'd have to take uh, as the SEC champion LSU, and they've pretty much laid the groundwork for that to happen by ranking them ahead of USC. Were you surprised they're ahead of the Trojans? No, I'm not. You know, once again, if you look on videotape, I think they're the more balanced team right now. And obviously, if they beat Georgia, they're in. They are in the college football playoff. And then now there's a huge, you know, now Georgia is certainly the most talented team in the country. What do you do with them? If that's a close game, those two teams are in. A little bit like Ohio State and the Wolverines. I think those those are the, you know, those you have to do that. But here, here's something else to think about, Tom, is that, you know, Alabama, and this is not to – uh, is just talking about schedules and who you play. Alabama lives on the road at Tennessee in the last seconds of the game and on the road at LSU in the last seconds of the game. There's not a team in the country, including Georgia or Ohio State, that survives that without a loss. That's two out of three weeks, night games in the SEC against those talented teams. So, you know, you, you know that's where you got to really think this thing through with TCU, USC. You know, what would their, you know, what would it be like? The committee's got to really put their the thought process and watch the videotape and say, okay, who are these best teams? And sometimes I think, are they qualified to do that? You know, there are some very good people on that committee, but can they sit and evaluate? Because there's only one way to do it, and that's watch, watch them. Not on TV, but watch the videotape and, and say, okay, who are the best four teams in America? So LSU wins that game. They're in. I want to hit a couple of other topics before we let you go today. Um, number one, are you in favor of the college football playoff expanding to 12? I am now. I was not. I am now, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons. Number one, the viewership would be a, immense, and it's such a great opportunity for the players. The number two thing is that people are starting to lose interest in bowl games, which is a shame. You know, it's, you know teams are – you know, when you, whenever you see six to eight players decide not to play in bowl games because the game doesn't matter as much, I certainly understand it because in the NFL, I don't like it, but I understand it. So this would give more people an opportunity to keep their teams together and and have the you know some great games down the road. You know, the thing you have to look at though is the wear and tear on the the body of the student athlete. You know, you really, you know, you don't just throw twelve games. Don't just throw, throw another game in the you know, in the mix here. I don't know. Do you, do you give the players more? Do you give this coaches more scholarships to work with? How's the schedule work out? Because you know, you start thinking we went fourteen and one in two thousand and sixteen. No, fourteen. And we beat Alabama. We beat Wisconsin. Beat Alabama. Beat Oregon. If they said, "Oh, by the way, you got one more," you know, I'm not sure. You know, we would have did it, of course, but I'm not sure how much you have left in that tank. Um. NIL, 
uh, for a head coach, I, I mean, it's got to add now another just just laundry list of headaches or potential headaches when you're, you're the head coach of a football program like Ohio State and many, many others. Is that fair to say? It's absolutely fair. And I think the intent, Tom, was incredible. I think it's the right thing to do. But with, you know, without any real regulation, intent, it's not what that's not really what's happened. Though. And, 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 you know, people are using it for inducements, uh, pay for play type mentality that's illegal but there's really no uh, from my understanding of all the co- my colleagues that I still talk to quite often there's uh, quite often there's really not enforcement of any of this yet because it's all new the bottom line is should a player be able to you know make some money on name and likeness whether selling his jersey whether signing autographs whether business opportunities for non-revenue sports you see people do some you know have a chance to this is America and you have a right to do that. But what's happened is, which a lot of us thought would happen, is a lot of people are buying players. And that's, you know, that, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, Joe Burrow, you recruited him to come to Ohio State out of, out of Athens, Ohio. Uh, you already had a, a quarterback who had proven to be a winning quarterback, had helped lead your team to a national championship. Uh, and, and Burrow ultimately, with your help, makes a decision uh, to transfer down to LSU. Did you think Joe Burrow would be Joe Burrow? No. Uh, Joe Burrow was basically an uh, under-recruited guy. Tom Herman, my quarterback coach, found him. I remember calling me and was videotaping from his cell phone, said, I think I found your next Alex Smith. Um, he was a state uh, champion in basketball elite competitor, came from a great football family. His intelligence was above, you know, his, his football intelligence. He got to know him. He had a slow release. His arm wasn't very strong. And then he worked his tail off. His hard-working guy's ever been around. And his toughness just kept leadership, kept showing up, kept showing up. And then, then he was our backup quarterback to JT Barrett and broke his hand about seven days before our first game, his throwing hand. And, and Cardell Jones became the backup. And Cardell Jones went on to become a legend and won, a, won the national title. So that put us in a dilemma. We let both team, both players battle for the starting spot in 2015. And that's when uh, Joe, it was really close, but we, we gave Cardell a start. I'm sorry, Dwayne Haskins. I'm sorry, Dwayne Haskins was the backup quarterback for uh, JT Barrett. And... Dwayne Haskins uh, went on to have a great year. And Joe Burrow transferred. He looked to several schools, and we still are very close to this day. He's a very close to all our Buckeyes. And obviously, LSU did a great job. First year, he was just okay. He had a good year, but his second year is one of the best in college football history. Um, Luke Fickle, uh, you, you talked about when you came in and you were brought in as a head coach. Um, at Ohio State and all the, 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 the turmoil that was going on from Trestle, Fickle takes over. Uh, they finish under 500, uh, which had never happened uh, before or since, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at Ohio State. You kept him on as your defensive coordinator. Um, was that a hard thing to do uh, or a hard thing for him to do? In hindsight, to go from being the head coach, hoping you got a chance to stay as a head coach, and now all of a sudden you're a defensive coordinator again. 
Yeah, I had no intention of keeping uh, Coach Fickle. I was already looking for defense coordinators. Gene Smith asked that I meet with him, and I said, of course. I, you know, I have great respect for Luke over the years, but I felt at the time it was time for a clean break. You know, like you said, there was a lot of stuff. The more homework you did, there wasn't that much stuff. You know, we lost uh, the NCA, took nine scholarships from us, took a bowl game from us. Uh, they just lost to the, the rivals, you know, to the Wolverines a couple of days earlier. And I thought, you know what, we're going to do, uh, we're going to have a clean break. I'm going to get a whole new staff in here. And then I met with Coach Fickle and his wife, and they were really good on defense over the years. I'm, and I became somewhat immediate after I sat down with him. First of all, he's an incredible person. He loves Ohio State. He has a great reputation with high school coaches in the state, and he's a very good, excellent coach. So uh, I decided to keep him. It, it, it was shocking to me, too. I prayed on it. I slept on it. And the next morning, I called him up and offered him the job, and he took it. And uh, we've remained very close. He's uh, one of the best I've ever been around. What Are, are you surprised? Maybe that's not the right word. Um, or, or are you amazed? that he comes to your alma mater and has done what he has done here? I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. You know, him, I had, you look at guys like Kyle Whittingham, who's at Utah, uh, Ryan Day. You had uh, Danny Mullen, who was with me, and then guys like Luke Fickle. Those guys are head coaches waiting. I mean, those guys are, you can tell very early with you, they're big picture people, they're problem solvers. They address the issues directly which I think is something, a skill that uh, a lot of coaches, when, when you see them fail, that's part of it. And Luke Fickle's got it all. And he's hired a very good staff. He's at a great school. He knows the school. He's recruited and developed well. So I'm not surprised at all, uh, but I'm so excited. I'm a huge fan, obviously. Um, look, every time there's a job that's open, Coach, uh, in, in major college football, uh, your name is the first one that always comes up. Uh, you, you walked away from it for health reasons at Florida. You walked away for health reasons at Ohio State. Um, does Urban Meyer want to coach college football again? No desire. No desire. I, I, Tom, when I tell you I love what I do, it's beyond love. You know, I mean, I love uh, when I say love what I do, I love being a grandparent. I love uh, living my life right now and, and uh, then working on Fox with uh, my great team that I work with. So I have no desire, Tom, to, to coach. But, Urban, you're a young man. I mean, you're a young man. You know, I mean, look, you know, it may not be young when our kids are hanging around. They look just like we're a 1,000 years old, and now you as a granddad. But, man, I, I think there are a lot of us who just sit there and say, how in the world would this guy not come back and coach college football again? Well, I think the game's changed. You know, I think, you know, it's such a much different game than – just five years ago, seven years ago. And I'm not saying it's for the worse. It's actually fantastic. Viewership's never been higher, but this is a personal situation that I have had some health issues. And, you know, it seems like you know, it's just something I I really cherish the time with uh, Shelly, the grandkids, the kids, and, and living life and supporting other people that, um, whether it be family members or colleagues in this great game. So I'm glad I'm still around the game because I love it, uh, but no desire. All right. Well, I, I know you'll be able to, to quench that, uh, that competitive uh, nature of yours by playing pickleball on a regular basis then. It'll have to be that. I'm glad there's no video of that there, brother. Yeah, you and me both. Although you and I came through when it mattered.
We were down one game and we right. came back and rallied. Because I, I was in fear that if uh, we did not come back and rally, that I was not going to leave that house in one piece. So that's the way it all played out. Well, so good to see you. So good to see you with that headset on, brother. Thank you, man. Urban Meyer, kind enough to join us and uh, really appreciate his time very, very much. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.